This episode of Spectre Cinema Club is brought to you by Ostend. Looking for a not-so-typical vacation spot? Ostend is a quaint, intimate place away from the bustle of city life. We have a lovely hotel to service you, and Bruges is only a short drive away. Perfect for newlyweds seeking privacy. Book your honeymoon to Ostend today. Welcome, welcome back to Spectre Cinema Club, a podcast obsessed with horror subgenre. I am your co-host, Mr. Garrett McDowell, sitting virtually across from me. It's Mr. Devon Taylor. Hello, hello. Uh, good to good to be back. Of course, we actually kind of uh, took a little chunk uh, in real time between between recording. You know, the the guests. Yeah. You guys don't know this, but we had like a little break uh, in between just because of you know life and uh, birthday shenanigans and stuff. Which of course I got to see you on my birthday, which was a great time. Yeah, some one of us is one year older, so uh, a happy uh, one year given to you, Mr. Devon Taylor. It was uh, lovely to spend uh, this uh, birthday with you and the pod and and in real life. It was uh, it was a blast yeah and uh i i was very very happy with a birthday double feature in case you guys were wondering of course uh started off with american psycho followed up by 2005's constantine um a, a very me double feature for sure yeah just vibes all around just immaculate vibes it was very funny because obviously everybody knows american psycho but then half the people when constantine was on they're just like what the hell is this i'm like <laughs> you do not know 2005 constantine starring keanu reeves it's a good way to weed out the people at the bar that you do and don't want to talk to. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, uh, well. speaking of people that we want to talk to, um, of course, um, we are kicking off Pride Month uh, once again here on the pod. This is our third time uh, doing a Pride series of some sort. Um, so I'm very excited that, you know, we're able to kind of keep that going. And we're doing that with a celebration of camp this year. Uh, we're going to try to figure out what camp is. Um, it's a very uh, tenuous uh, subject and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to do our best to figure out the semantics of it. But, you know, who knows? But the other thing that's always great about Pride Month is we usually uh, do two guests for the month and then me and Garrett do two episodes just on our own. But with Pride Month, we always try to uh, get guests for the entire month. So we have a stack cast of people from all over the queer spectrum to join us for this celebration of camp. And first up. They are one of the editors of Slash Film with bylines across Rue Morgue, Fangoria, and many other places. Welcome to the show, Cass Clark. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited to figure out what camp is or isn't. Uh, probably all of the above. <laughs> it, it's, it, we'll, we'll get into uh, when we, when we um, after I ask you, you know, our guest questions, we'll, we'll get into uh, the, the contradictory nature of camp uh, in the things I found in my research. Uh, but before we get into that, of course, always want to ask the guests, uh, what are some of your favorite subgenres of horror? Oh, I really am a big fan of like revenge thrillers as of late. I think uh, I definitely came to horror in general with slashers. I definitely was a scream baby, you know, born in 89. So like that's kind of hard not to see how formative that was on me. Uh, but yeah, lately I feel like just revenge. Um, I was obsessed with The Glory that recently hit Netflix, which is a Korean thriller revenge drama. It's fantastic acting. It's it's insane. Speaking of camp, a woman is set on fire and she keeps going. <laughs> it is so good. I highly recommend. Uh, so those are probably my big two. And then 
I would probably also say uh, intergenerational trauma when it's done interestingly and done well and uh, isn't shoehorned in, which I think is, for me lately, I've been seeing trauma thrown around in horror in a way that I'm like, I don't know. I wish there's a little bit more heart, but I think it is out there. I think it is out there in some fine indie films, films like Relic, one of my favorite films in the world. You can find it if you seek it out. Yeah, that's a subgenre in and of itself that's kind of uh, emerged a lot in recent years. And we've definitely talked about kind of our fatigue of that genre, not necessarily uh, obviously when it's done well, but more of this. It's just this kind of film that's put over everything. It's like, we're, we need we need a theme to make this movie a bit more serious. Let's just go to, let's just do trauma, you know? Trauma <laughs> <Or> grief. grief. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Literally, yeah. So, like, that seems to be the, you know, like, oh, like, everybody wants emotional horror now. But it's like there are literally so many more emotions between besides just horror and grief if you're, you know, trying to, like, hone in on something. So, yeah, we've, we've definitely discussed that and, you know, how we kind of have a corner of a bonkers horror kind of happening right now that's, like, almost the antithesis uh, of that, which I which I appreciate. But, yeah, no, nothing wrong with exploring trauma and grief because that is a big uh, concept. But uh, it's getting, uh, yeah, it's getting a little saturated and it's kind of getting to the point where, you know, we... You know, everybody talked about torture porn in the in the 2000s. I think trauma porn is kind of the new uh, one for at least this current landscape. But um, I think I feel like slashers have been uh, the one shouted out by guests the most often on here. You know, slashers do seem to be a, um, a nice introductory for a lot of people for horror. I think it's like not a surprise to me, too, that lately we're seeing more comedy slashers emerge, like in a response to like how much trauma infused narratives are out there. Like, yes, we do have the like bonkers things like Terrifier and Terrifier 2 and Winnie Pooh, Blood and Honey. Uh, but I do I think things like like the blackening and like bodies, 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 like we're seeing people just wanting to have a good time with horror again and play a little bit. So I'm excited to see more of that come out, too. Uh before we started recording you asked if we were allowed to uh swear and we were like yeah of course what you're not allowed to do is bring up winnie the pooh blood and honey on this podcast <laughs> that is ve- that is vetoed <laughs> i interviewed the director and it, i don't think that we have same taste is all i will say so i was like i don't think i need to see it based on how that conversation went yeah, uh, but i'm sorry yeah, if i brought yeah. up wounds <laughs> i can confirm you do not in fact need to see it <laughs> okay right. yeah we, we we uh we we do endorse the 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 pre- the concept and theory but uh with what uh happened of it uh yeah well you know it is what it is um uh, um but yeah you know and obviously you know we're talking camp this uh month and that does uh have a lot of bonkers uh horror elements uh, especially with our uh final movie for the month which i'm of course very excited for um uh, but as far as um you know we are covering pride and and a lot of times these have been uh, movies that people have kind of chosen as you know personal choices sometimes not but um so i did want to kind of ask off the top before we get into like other stuff if there is a film that has kind of spoken to you on a you know on a whether you know identity uh gender level uh whether that's a specific character or maybe the concept of the film itself have uh, you kind of seen yourself in a specific horror film yeah i would say i don't know if it's necessarily like i've seen myself in it but i i would say that, like all cheerleaders die i've seen the the feeling of a uh repressing like complicated queer feelings like especially like bisexuality, like I'm bisexual, non-binary. I haven't quite seen a lot of that portrayal in, in horror necessarily, but I like that in All Cheerleaders Die, there's just the, uh, 
it feels more fluid and there's just like, I don't know, it's, it somehow gets at that sapphic longing that I don't really see on screen and horror that often and taken seriously and handled well. Uh, so that one definitely for sure. Have either of you seen All Trailers Die? No, um, I know because I know um, Lucky McKee like did like the yeah. it was like his debut and then he like remade it himself again, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So I mean, I'm a big fan of May. Um, so I mean, I've oh, been yeah, wanting so I've been wanting to watch that one. So I so I haven't gotten to see that. Um, but yeah, and but I did want to uh, like I totally agree with the uh, the bisexuality aspect of it. Like I'm a bisexual person as well, and. And I feel like, yeah, we haven't really gotten as many stories, not that they haven't been there depicted, but we haven't really gotten stories kind of focused on, you know, bisexuality, whether that's, you know, people uh, kind of grappling with the idea of like, oh, I know certain, you know, one thing, especially for me early on was like, oh, I like women more than men, but does that mean I still get to call myself bisexual? Like if it's not 50, 50, you know? So like, I want to see a struggle like that presented in a film, but then I also would love uh, in the discourse, because I feel like we have bisexual characters in horror films, but then so many times once it's revealed that they, because it's usually a reveal that they are into the same sex and then it becomes, oh, now it's a gay story. And it's like, ah, why do we always have to make that flip? you know, uh, all of a sudden, you know, so many people, um, talk about the hunger as, you know, a gay vampire movie. I'm like, ah, she seems pretty bisexual to me. And like, there's a lot more layers than just like, oh, she's seducing a woman. That means she's actually lesbian. So like, I, I'd like to see uh, some variety in the discourse as well. Yeah. Which is like, I, I totally feel that too. Cause I also feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm married to like a cishet man. We, and I always joke around where I'm just like, I feel like I might just be a lesbian married to a man. And like, I'm not, I don't actually feel that way, but like, there's this idea of like, I feel like people are always trying to like out you when you're bisexual, where it's just like, I don't know, like there's just secret tally of something. And it's like, it's just this bullshit, but I would love to see people like being in varying kinds of relationships with varying, um, with varying genders and just not make it be like, you have to fit in a box because that's not how it works. And despite whoever you marry, whoever you're with, it doesn't change your sexuality. It's not like a light switch was turned off. Like it's just absurd. So I feel that so hard. Yeah. I think also just film as a medium is like particularly apt to like tackle stuff like that, you know, things that are like hard to define, hard to put in words and, and how many movies can, you know, we all think of of movies that have like, you're watching it and it's able to communicate something that you've never been able to quite, you know make clear there's like that famous kind of david lynch interview they're like where can you explain you know whatever movie and he's like if i could explain it to you i would i can't and it's on screen you know so it's that kind of idea that it's able to uh show all of these human experiences without necessarily putting too fine of a word on it and there's still that level of um you know you're able to adapt it and make it apply to yourself yeah, we're, we we definitely, you know, the, the, there's a interesting divide between like, you know, sometimes, you know, we want to see things as more explicit text in, in the film and it be there. But then also, it's also nice to where it's like, it also doesn't have to be the text that, you know, queer people can just exist in the movie as well. You know, so it's like, a, it's an interesting line of like, you know, wanting, you know, for things to be pre- presented as they are, rather than it, you know, still having to kind of certain things be uh, hidden in uh, subtext and uh, metaphors. So, yeah. um, but I I don't I would say uh, early on that that will not be the case uh, here uh, for the movie that we're talking today because I mean we got we got things that are pretty explicit. So let's go ahead and get into the movie for today's episode. Oh! 
Daughters of Darkness, or Le Lèvre Rouge, um, released May 28th, 1971, directed by Harry Kumel. Uh, this was written by Pierre Duat, Jean Ferry, Joseph Amiel, and Kumel himself. Um, four writers, all men, uh, on this uh, very queer uh, film. So, you know, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, cinematography, done by Edward Van uh, Vander Inden. Score done by Francois de Roubaix, man, ooh, by Francois de Roubaix, and edited by Gus Vesturin and Dennis Bonin. Man, so many people on this crew. Oh my goodness. And of course, they're not helping me with the pronunciation at all. <laughs> um, the box office, um, I couldn't find any box office numbers, uh, but it was reported for a $750,000 budget. Um, Cass, what do you think this has on Rotten Tomatoes right now? Um, I'm going to guess like 37. Uh, well, I mean, of course, for this older movie, since there's not as many reviews, the Rotten Tomatoes scores are a little bit skewed. Uh, it's at 80% on only 20 reviews currently. Um, but okay. yeah, you know, people think of this favorably. Uh, what do you think uh, the Letterboxd average rating is? I feel like this is also a film that would do well on Letterboxd. Because uh, I'm also curious, like, of those 20 reviewers, like, if they were all critics... <laughs> Uh, and specifically horror critics. I'm going to guess mm, 3.5 out of 5 stars. Yeah, 3.6. You were you were pretty oh, close. Sweet. You were pretty close there on the money. So yeah, 3.6 uh people um so that's a, you know, 7.2 out of 10. So yeah, people are uh, you know, thinking of this pretty uh pretty well and I know that this movie's been sitting on shutter like pretty much since its inception. So I feel like a lot of people in the past few years have uh really gotten to dive into this one, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but um before we uh get into the the movie proper um i did want to uh let's talk camp for a hot minute as a as a general thing before we uh get into um the movie itself so i i pulled from a few different articles a few different essays um even the definitions between oxford and webster have even differed over the years so um a few notes that i've found so um, it's suggested to come from se camper, uh, Latin translating to to boldly posture. So to, to camp is literally to serve. Um, so uh, that that makes sense. That camp is, you know, obviously very inherently uh, in the in the queer canon uh, it, it currently, but then also uh, kind of it's. Um, early on as well um it can be described as an aesthetic style but also as a social practice it kind of focuses on the performance and presentation more than the idea or substance of the thing itself it's kind of camp is more more than a concept but it's like the it's a uh descriptor and uh, more oftentimes than not um, i guess you know the way that we describe things as campy um the so in Oxford uh, in the Oxford de, uh, definition from 1909 it is defined as uh, ostentatious, uh, exaggerated, affected, theatrical, um, semicolon, effeminate or homosexual behavior. So early 1900s they're just like yeah no camp just means gay. Uh, it, it was uh, what they were pretty much trying to attribute to it. Um, but then uh, it kind of got a little bit more defined in 1970 by Webster. Um, and talking about the banality, mediocrity, uh, artifice, or ostentation uh, to uh, to such an extreme as to amuse or have perversely sophisticated appeal. So, like, kind of 
um, to exaggerate a certain, uh, uh, focus in on a certain idea and exaggerate it, um, uh, which uh, kind of brings us to um, Susan Sontag's Note on Camp uh, essay, which is pretty much the definitive um, thing for it. And um, in, in that, you know, not only does she kind of define uh, the evolution of camp, but also the differences between high camp and low camp. Uh, low camp kind of is more anti-serious, um, you know, kind of more silly, bold, uh, more when people think of cheesy, um, you're, you know, more thinking of low camp versus high camp has an underlying seriousness to it, uh, as she quoted. Um, you're not making fun of it, you're making fun out of it, um, was kind of the way that she described high camp. Um, so, what do you guys uh, think, uh, what are your guys' ideas of camp uh, whenever you kind of hear it in a film? Um, for me, I, I think it's definitely uh, a, a sort of a, a balance, right? It's it's blurring this line between horror and blurring this line between comedy. There are two genres that often, like, obviously um, kind of bump up one another, uh, towards one another in a negative way, but a lot of filmmakers have embraced that and, and used uh, humor to kind of punctuate the horror that's happening uh, on screen. Uh, so I think there's this real dissonance between the two, but it's this embracing of this sort of um, these these two different seemingly different tones embracing it in kind of like a self-reflective sort of way um, there's there's a definitely a meta quality to camp um, they are often using human or, or humor to kind of underline certain social themes in the movie too I think that there's a lot of camp films that are have something to say um, about uh, the genre in which the film takes place, uh, uh, filmmaking, audience expectations, a lot of those um, sort of um, ideas at, at play and what people have kind of uh, assumed the genre of horror is supposed to and is supposed to not have um, in, in these films. So I think that's this real balancing of tension of those two ideas between fear, between humor, and I think that this film has um, almost garnered this new appreciation on a camp level, even if that's not what the intent was making the film. Um, there's certainly like a soap opera quality to this film that I feel like has kind of garnered this camp um, revisionist kind of history, which I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's just real balancing act. And I, I think that that's why it's a definition that a lot of people have a difficult time kind of nailing down um, because it's often um, more of a personal taste rather than something that like a Webster's is able to easily define. Yeah, so I had a writer teacher once talk about how tension works in a story as like raising the dial. So if you think of a like a traditional-ish uh, narrative, most stories start at like a three of the volume and you know, a problem comes up, maybe it gets to like a six, then all of a sudden there's a pullback to like reflect, goes back to a two, and then all of a sudden there's a big dramatic action, it goes up to a nine, and then there's like the denouement or whatever, like everything settles back down to two or three, that's the end of like kind of our traditional story structure. Uh, but not all stories have to be that way. Like some stories can start out at 11 and like go up and down and play with the levels. Like that's the fun of it. And so I feel like with camp, what it really is, is it's intentionally delivering these outlandish moments or like two quiet moments that disrupt the narrative in a way that it can be incidental or it can be like on purpose, but it's something that feels out of tune with what's going on. Like one character might be being very blasé where everything else around them is heightened and intense, but they're just like, almost like a Pete Davidson like moment of just being like the dopey not taking something seriously and it feels like when you're watching it when you're experiencing it it feels out of out of sync like something isn't quite like 
connecting but in a purposeful way or on the other end of the spectrum where someone is like heightening it up to draw attention to the fact they're not playing by like the traditional standards of the narrative like I think of like a, a film that you all are going to cover later on this pod Death Becomes Her is a great example of just uh, acting so outlandish where like you're already at like at a level 11 but you're bringing it up to a level 15 uh, and the actors are just playing off each other to almost so you can go higher and that is part of the fun but you don't actually need that um, so I feel like for me it's like doing that is what equates to camp uh, and I love that because I feel like it just also shows you how queer camp is aside from like its traditional definitions because it doesn't necessarily fit the structure that you expect it doesn't play by the rule of like uh, narratives that were traditionally told and fed like it does not fit the Joseph Campbell like a hero's journey narrative it breaks free of that and plays with those levels and I think that is what hopefully we'll see in this film and other films where when there's a moment like someone falling on a razor blade and dying you're like why am I laughing at that and you're like well the staging the, the feeling of that just feels so like out of sorts but it commits to that having a moment in the film uh, so yeah that's my like more like abstract thought about how I connect to camp but I love to hear what yeah. Devon has to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it it um, everybody does kind of attribute it to a heightened reality aspect, and then also that dissonance aspect that you're that we're kind of describing of like where it's like almost there, but not quite. You know, doesn't isn't right in there. Um, so I guess I do think of it mainly in um, it, you know, because again, camp is a uh, is a performance uh, aesthetic as well. So I mean, I feel like that's kind of maybe the first place I go to. When I think of camp is uh, added to it by the behavior of the person, because like you said, uh, behaving in a way that is just not traditional. Um, and I feel like that's why uh, kind of camp is uh, not exclusive to horror. Like obviously, there's you know camp films of all genres, but I feel like it is the most prevalent in horror because horror itself is kind of a camp premise in, in general, like almost any time, you know, how many times do you watch a film and someone is, you know, makes a decision or behaving in a certain way or things unfold in a certain way. And it's like, no, in real life, it wouldn't happen that way because or else there wouldn't be a movie, you know? So it's kind of a, uh, in that way, you know, you already have that suspension of disbelief when you're watching a horror film. So I feel like that's why camp fits in so well with it in heightening uh, you know, again, not only just the performances of, you know, the way that people do, but then also, like you said, the way that um, situations would happen in real life. It's, you know, it's amplifying, it's exaggerating it, and film does that in general, but then camp is a very particular, um, you know, uh, again, performativeness uh, to, you know, elevate something to a status that, you know, maybe typically isn't uh, in a certain way, um, but then also... Um, in the uh, presentation of things, you know, like I feel like that is more where, um, you know, where we kind of get the queer aspects from, not only just because of like, you know, queer people just uh, stereotypically known to be flamboyant um, in, in one way or another. Um, so it's like, obviously, there's that. But then there's the presentation, like, you know, there's so much, um, you know, uh, costuming can be camp, you know, the, the decor of a room can be camp, you know, and like, so like, um, I feel like a lot of those things come from influences um, within, you know, queer pop culture. Yeah. So, so, so I see it in that way too. It's, it's a real balancing act for sure. And I think that there's a reason um, 
why audiences are kind of adverse to a lot of camp um, in horror, especially, but also recently I've noticed in action movies too, people have this real aversion to the suspension of disbelief and seeing ridiculous, crazy things happening on screen and not being able to see that as quote unquote realistic. Uh, I think audiences nowadays are craving for a sense of realism, which I anticipate kind of having this uh, turn and in this embrace of camp and this embrace of the silliness. Not everything has to be so gosh darn serious all the time. I think we're able to have um, a little bit of fun. So even though it's certainly not for everybody and it's kind of this weird pairing of flavors, especially in horror, um, I think the reason that movies like Daughters of Darkness are able to withstand the test of time are not only, yes, because of the queer themes that the movie has. You can't even say subtext. It literally is just the text. <laughs> mm. um, but it's it's because it's this embracing of these tones and these different flavors that people have really um, seen themselves in, globbed onto, and again, kind of uh, given the film new identity that might not have even been intended when the uh, the movie was incepted. Yeah. So it, it's super funny because whenever I was presenting, uh, whenever I present guests with like the list of themes that, you know, I'm like, hey, this is what we got coming up, pick wherever. And most of them are self-explanatory and, you know, nobody really has any questions. Uh, this was the only one that like people have asked like multiple questions on like, wait, so what do you mean? What like what do you want? I'm like camp. I camp like like you know we're gonna like everybody has a different idea, so we're gonna figure it out. But like it was very funny. Just like even uh, the idea of it was you know everybody was just like oh wait, so I'm not sure. But so I'm excited um for to talk this movie. And so Cass, what made you want to talk about Dars of Darkness and uh, its application to the the theme this month? Well, I'm also like just thinking about what we all just said. I'm like fascinated by Garrett's distinction of like intentional versus like unintentional camp and like whether or not. Because I thought about it a lot with this film, right? Like, if it's not intentional, does that does that take away from the campiness? I feel like that's gonna be a that's gonna be a (laughs) big question (laughs) for literally every movie this month. Uh, uh, which is, yeah, I'm very excited to kind of get into the intention part too. But I, I guess another question too, and we talked about this, I think, when we talked about old is it was like, does M. Night know what he's doing? Does it matter? You know, that's kind of my question is like, intentional or not, yeah, I guess that could take away some of the camp or not, but I think you're... If we've already established that camp is such a subjective thing, you're already sort of twisting the movie to to fit this kind of definition that you have of camp. And so whether or not the director is attending to hit you at where your camp definition lies... Who cares? You know what I mean? I, I think it's so subjective anyway that uh, it's, it's it's always going to be different for, for every person of how the film displays its, its sort of campiness. And I think uh, displaying campiness is what this film does best. <laughs> uh, I think from like, like thinking about like Devon was saying, like from the costuming, from like the like the gothic appearance of this like seaside oceanfront hotel from the way the eroticism is shot to like the way that the deaths happen all the deaths in this film are just wily set pieces and i just feel like they all have such distinct style and and attitude and it's one of those films where especially the finale oh my goodness (laughs) um it's just one of those films where uh I was just floored after I saw it and I was just like, I want to be Elizabeth Bathory. Like I want to have this like boa, like robe, just walking into rooms and feeling that power. Um, so that though all those things are attracting me to this film. And it's one of those films, like once, once you see it, you can't unsee it and you'll think about it forever. <laughs> 
Yeah. Had you uh, had you seen this Garrett before before this one? So I had not seen it, but it was on my watch list. Uh, if anyone saw the uh, kind of mini series that came out Shutter, I believe last year called Queer for Fear, this was a film that was in this larger conversation about how horror icon uh, uh, monsters and characters like uh, vampires and Wolfman and all of those kind of things, how they are kind of inherently queer and how in a lot of these films there's this kind of shared identity of the outsider, someone who's hiding this piece of themselves and who is afraid to display that fully to everyone. And then in this sort of era in the 60s and in the early 70s of the the lesbian vampire being a trope this was a movie that was uh pointed to for uh for kind of being the poster child not just the poster child but like sort of the best least sleazy version of that still kind of managing to have that feminist messaging without just being total male gaze the entire time which i'm sure that was something we're definitely going to be discussing today of the intention behind that or not um so yeah this was something i had not seen so this was my first time seeing it but i was aware of kind of the reputation of the movie uh and i totally agree like this is the movie that is like a bell that once you ring you can't unring it you know it's <laughs> it's going to be swirling around in my mind uh, uh for a while i think that this is such a great movie to kick this month off with because not only is it super camp um I, I don't think it's the most camp movie that we're going to talk about this month, but I definitely think it is a uh, uh, key element in the movie. Uh, but also, this is this movie's gay as hell, you know? <laughs> so it's like it manages to do uh, both, like, the themes that we're talking about uh, uh, throughout this month. So I think that this is such, like, a great, you know, leadoff hitter. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I put it at the beginning because, obviously, it's the earliest one that we're going to talk this month. Um, so it made sense in that way. But it does definitely kind of, yeah, uh, uh, eases in it's like you know it's campy but it's not you know uh, yeah definitely not the most campy we're gonna get uh, for sure uh, this was a first time watch for me um, I um, I haven't watched Queer for Fear uh, the doc yet but um, but yeah I had had this on my list for a while because I put it in um, it was on my uh, erotic thrillers watch list um, so so of course I, I've been watching a bunch of those lately um, so um, so yeah definitely had it on my list uh, and yeah, like it definitely like kind of lives up. It's like one of those uh, few 70s movies that like when you like look at the poster, it, like this movie feels exactly like that. Like there is like this air, air of mystery to it. There's an air of sexiness, but then the sexiness that turns sinister and sleazy, um, uh, you know, and then like, you know, at first it's like, oh, yeah, no, this is like very hot. And like, yeah, I would totally want to be with Elizabeth. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh, no, she's, you know, just as just as awful as like anybody else. And so it's like the way that the movie sucks you in and then like, you know, it's very much, you know, how people manipulate and seduce people um, in this way. And then, you know, it's just like, oh, no, like, of course, like you saw, you know, you saw all the these flags, but you didn't see these ones. Um, but it's too late now, you know, so that, the, the, the movie um, for for how campy it is, it definitely descends into this much darker, uh, you know, place emotionally by the end of it. By, by the end of it, it's like, oh, there's some really not cool shit happening right now in this movie. And, uh, and it, you know, it's like kind of a whiplash from the, you know, laughing at. Um, you know, certain certain scenes or, you know, I, I definitely want to talk like Elizabeth now, but it's impossible. You know uh, what she's doing in this movie is incredible, um, you know, and uh, I loved uh, the look of it. It's gorgeous. It has that that dreamy filminess to it as well. Um, and uh, and I and just the performances are 
all so very specific and they're all giving different camp performances and it's like usually on a movie you want everybody on the same page and this is like kind of one of those movies where it's great that people are on different pages um because it like you know works out so well and like kind of gives this very well-rounded uh kind of portrayal of it um and yeah so uh this movie is just unabashedly gay um unabashedly sleazy um in a way um that it it hits on that voyeuristicness of erotic thrillers but without it feeling uh gross and gazy at least uh, at least in my opinion but we'll get into that with you know some more uh specific scenes here um but Cass, are you ready to give us a 60 second synopsis I'm ready. All right. <laughs> All right. So good luck here because there's a there's a lot. So we'll, we'll so you can handle this many different ways as all guests do. So I got you on the clock here in three, two, one, go. Okay. So uh, Shady Stefan is newly married to the Undernew Valerie. Their honeymoon at a fancy seaside hotel leads them to meet the gorgeous lesbian vampire Elizabeth Bathory, who becomes fascinated by the couple and determines to drive them apart with violence and sex. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, boom! You're just like I love how you you're just like oh wait uh, you 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 think I'm not gonna handle this? Boom! Fifteen seconds, <laughs> in and out, bam, bam. No, I, uh, we 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 love a concise uh, synopsis as well because yeah, that basically is. It's just like they're all the superfluous details that like make this into this like very you know twisty, complicated story. But really, it's uh it's pretty damn simple. Uh, what's uh what's going on here? Um, but yeah, and um, so so yeah, so we'll we'll kind of start with our uh, trio here because I feel like that really is the the dearth of the the film of um, of uh, Valerie Stefan and uh, Elizabeth uh, Battery. They they say the they they say the hard T in this one, which uh, okay. I which I oh, I just found very funny. I'm like. Like, because, like, you know, we all know Elizabeth Bathory, but then it's like yes, kind of, yeah. it, it throws, uh, it, it, I feel like it feeds into part of it that, like, you know, uh, to uh, Elizabeth being like, no, no, it's not me. That was my, that was my descendant. And, Break, right? you know, I am yeah. Elizabeth Bathory, you know, now. And um, <laughs> uh, her trying to kind of present herself in a way. Um, so, so with our newlyweds here, man. The Stefan uh, being uh, cast as John Carlin, he has the perfect um, smug, douchey bowl cut for this film. <laughs> like yes. his his face fits this role like so perfectly. And like what he's doing performance wise, um, he's definitely like the weakest of the three, um, you know, as, as far as like, you know, kind of and he's the least campy. Um, but his just his look fits this role so well, and especially the way that they dress him as well. The the fashion is such a big thing in this film that I'm very excited to get into. Um, but yeah, so so I feel like on the uh, we have a nice uh, sliding scale of camp between the three performances, uh, with Valerie kind of being uh, in the middle, but she gets campier as the movie goes, and then of course we have Elizabeth uh, just uh, camp countess uh, doing her thing at the top. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I feel like the there is a, a good balance of the camp and the seriousness, though. Um, my mic sound okay? Okay, sorry. I feel like there is this balance, though, between the camp and the seriousness in the film, and like some of these, uh, like 
long diatribes about like feminist theory and she like uh, uh delphine plays it like super seriously uh there's just like these long-winded replies that she has about like repressing your own sexuality and rep repressing your own uh femininity and womanhood and and delphine was a, a very outspoken like feminist activist at this time so i feel like that she kind of takes these opportunities to like really just dive into the truth of what is being said here and in, in her character's um, eyes and taking that as a time to like let the film be a, a bit more serious and, and really focused on the text you know yeah I the way I wrote in my notes of the way that people spoke in this film is um, everybody one talks like they have something to hide which most of them do but then some people don't but they still talk like they have like some sort of weird secret that they're hiding uh, <laughs> there's there's uh, they speak in that way and 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 uh, oh man, I had another note on that. Man, we're a little bit scatterbrained here. Um, <laughs> um, um, but yeah, there there was something about the way that um, they kind of did that, and uh, every every line, no matter how long the dialogue is, is like they're trying to say it in one breath. It's like everyone like takes like a deep breath before they do, it and they're just like, and you know, blah, 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 and then they like you know try to like hit it all on like one breath, and like so like it has this um you know it, the camp is you know described as theatrical and obviously it kind of has like a theatrical vibe to it but um you know we've also described um you know people like m night Shyamalan or like or a yorgos lanthimos where it's like no like th they're speaking english but something about the way they're speaking it just like doesn't feel right and obviously this does take place over in europe but uh the film is in english and they are like speaking english this isn't a dub situation yeah, and I think it's also like harkening back to the early and speaking of like actually sleazier films of like the Hammer Horror era of using like coded lesbian characters or uh, just naked women for the sake of naked women and like Dracula or Dracula like themed films from like that time period. And I feel like in a way they're kind of emulating that uh, that error, but at the same point in time, like the it's it's like decades since then, so we also feel that dissonance which again i think plays into the camp of it where it's like if you if you put the whole film into black and white and then you know uh, take away some like modern aspects of it you could see this like coming out in like the late 1930s because they're just having that like breathy like norman desmond like sunset boulevard delivery of um like old hollywood like way of speaking which i just think is fascinating and i don't know too much about Ber like berlin cinema but i'm curious how much of it was just like that also still being popular at the time period and wanting to like call back to it in a way that like just happened to work for this film. But now with aged like time now we're like, oh, this feels so campy and so strange. But maybe that back then it felt like an homage that people were like, oh, this is this is cool. This feels like the things that are hip now. There's definitely a soap opera level quality to the movie, too, um, in, in a lot of these conversations, the way scenes that are, you know, softly lit, especially like the female characters kind of having this soft focus on them. There's this great shot of uh, Elizabeth, like having this uh, black veil over her face and it's all, you know, fuzzy and dreamy and in and, and, uh, you know, vibrant and beautiful. And uh, it definitely has this uh, kind of this this eye of beauty in the in the way that it, it views uh women on screen it seems very nostalgic in, in a sort of way uh so almost, almost like in a rita hayworth sort of you know gilda situation it has like the soft haze which also feels like it also plays into the eroticism of this piece where people are a bit um they're a bit unreal 
and they're a bit put on a pedestal. So I think that they don't quite feel like they're human people. <laughs> yeah, I, I always appreciate this quality, especially in 70s films. Um, it, not only in, you know, these like kind of uh, erotic thriller types, but like just kind of in general, like I like, you know, as much as people like uh, I know a lot of people love realism and stuff and they like kind of want to watch something like they appreciate like when it something looks super real. Uh, I'm a person while I'm watching a movie. I like to be reminded that I'm watching a movie, you know, and I feel like in the 70s with this, uh you know, specific aesthetic to it, like. Uh, very much like you know that you kind of there's no way you're to be confused on the the realism of this film you know just in the way that's presented the way that people are speaking like you know like nobody in real life speaks in soliloquies back and forth to each <laughs> other like this you know but like you know if, if only we had the time of day to do that you know like oh my goodness so it's like um you know so so that's definitely present as well as far as like you know some of the uh the, the camp elements um here and like you know, um, I mean, really, most of the, the movie, you know, is just conversation, you know, and it is like, you know, so much of like kind of this like soapy uh, dialogue to a degree, um, because it really is just like uh, focusing on just like the, the drama within these characters, the, the three main people and uh, kind of their different uh, dueling ideologies of, you know, what it means to be in a relationship, uh, what the role of you know making someone happy versus your own happiness entails um you know and things like that so it's like it the, the film is like so much caught up in that and I feel like um that is like kind of like a yeah comes from that soapy nature you know which also draws you know many camp elements from it there's definitely this like romantic sort of leaning to the movie and I don't mean romantic as like romance I mean like in yeah, like a like literature sense R. yeah <laughs> like yeah. Uh, I think that this movie definitely has uh, a leaning on uh, emotion and and you know these passionate lovers and these people who are bound by blood and in in you know their their destiny and I think that there is this real sort of um uh, conviction to the story but that's being told here and this taking it seriously but having this sort of tongue-in-cheek attitude again it's a real balancing act and and camp is something that has to be tuned pretty well for it to work uh and i was something that i was impressed with with this film is its ability to not only have that level of camp to it maybe not again as as much as some of the other films that we'll be talking this month but in a way that i never felt like it overshadowed the ideas that the film was was bringing up and, and, and discussing I felt like it's still this um, like powerful story uh, story of identity and in love and uh, power in relationships and like the the gender roles within relationships uh, and all of those things kind of coming to a head and switching roles and seeing certain characters you know begin the movie in one place and end in a totally different sort of perception of what we you know kind of view a, a man to behave or a woman to behave or something like that and i think it's able to look at all these ideas through the lens of sexuality um which i think uh, uh makes everything i don't know weirdly heightened in a way you know that every every moment in this movie feels um glossy and romantic and life and death you know in a way yeah, and I think that's where the horror comes in. I think the horror allows it to be that. Like, if it wasn't for the horror, uh, I don't know if it could fully express some of the ideas it's it's trying to dig into. Like, it very, very, it very much is self-aware with how much they're like connecting seduction with violence, blood with like bloodlust, and uh, with orgasms too. Like, there's definitely orgasmic bloodlust in here, <laughs> uh, and I think that helps keep 
I think that's what helps keep the center holding for me, honestly, because battery, I'm working on it, <laughs> is able to like dig into some really hard questions about like how far do you take like your devotion to someone? Like, do you take it to the end of your life? Like, is that is that what love is? Is that how much we're giving of ourselves? And at what point, like, are you beyond love? Because if, if that is love, then like you should only like choose yourself if that's like the end game here. Uh, it's, so it's very, very... Uh, very old school gothic romance in that way where like to to love is to like destroy yourself which is wild but i think it's because of the horror we get to to see that actually play out in varying ways which is wild and i I oh go ahead devon oh i was gonna say it's like it it all goes back to also like you know the another angle of camp is like the performative nature and like not only talk about the performances themselves but things being performative and like when you look at this couple, like this couple is performative. Like they are supposed, they are shown to be the they're the happy newlyweds and they're you know passionate. And like the very first scene is like the only kind of scene where I'm like, oh, they're kind of cute when they like kind of have yeah, this the like, train. <laughs> I don't, oh, I don't love you. Well, I don't love you either. That's why we're perfect. Like and like that's like the one moment where I'm like, oh, hey, they're kind of cute. And then the rest of the movie, it's like they are displayed one way, but then behind closed door it's like yo do y'all even like each other you don't know each other um you know you uh your parents don't know that you're getting married like all these things and like so like every other time you see them you're just like oh no like they are awful for each other they are not this at all but there is this performative nature to show that they are like because he's the aristocrat so he has to show like oh yeah no we are you know passionately love and we're happy and all these things and it's like it's you're you're totally not and it kind of goes you know, into the, um, you know, the, the area of, you know, the, the simple thing of this movie is like, at one point they were just like, Hey, no, you, you can't kink shame. And it's like, no, 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 those aren't kinks. Um, you know, kinks are, you know, things that are shared, uh, amongst each other with boundaries and, you know, spoken intentions and things like that. When there's, uh, this mystery behind it, you know, and, you know, the, the difference of like, you know, whenever they're at the crime scene and like, uh, Stefan's like getting excited and like, at that point, he's not doing anything dangerous or anything. So at that point, it's like, oh, yeah, some people are turned on by morbid shit. That's a thing. But there's a difference between that and then when Valerie's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to let him beat me with a belt and then, you know, have his way. Like, because that's what he's into, right? And it's like, no, no, no. There, there, there's very difference in what a, you know, kink is and then something that is just, you know, selfish and for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yeah, the movie is exploring a lot of these questions of sexuality and uh, authority in a weird way and like how that can be tied to mm-hmm. gender. And I don't know, I like I found this movie being sort of the epitome of like cult horror. Like this is like such a great example of a cult classic horror film in that it has these there's a, like a deep emotional reason that a lot of people have. Um, kind of gleaned towards this movie for having like the queer themes and the queer subtext but like really at the heart like this movie is like the the movie that your parents were afraid that you would be watching you know of like the the parents of yesteryear because this movie has sex it has blood it has violence it's like about passion it's like the poster child for all of these different uh sort of ingredients that make horror what it is and i think that they just played uh so well together in this movie in these different like uh, bite-sized kind of flavors just all working together in this movie kind of making it what I, I think yeah this is like like a, the kind of cult 
uh, LGBTQ like horror film. Uh, I'm glad that it is on Shutter, and a lot of people have had an opportunity to see the movie. And I, I think most importantly, it's able to be enjoyed as both. It's able to be enjoyed on those deeper levels, those themes, and and what this film is trying to communicate, inadvertently or not, uh, about relationships and and all of those things. And but it's also able to have this sort of tongue in cheek sort of attitude. But I did want to talk about because I've alluded to it a few times this intentionality here and we had mentioned that the film directed by a dude uh written by um, a few dudes <laughs> uh, uh from what we can tell like cishet you know uh men back in like the early 70s making a film in a time in which this was what devon was talking about it's it, this genre was about sleaze this particular subgenre was about sleaze and portraying women as portraying like these lesbian relationships not necessarily like in a manner of like empowering them but mostly like lusting after them and seeing that as like that it's it's hot seeing women you know kiss it's not necessarily empowering but i feel like in a weird way that has been reclaimed sort of that this movie is presenting this idea of this woman who maybe was repressing a lot of these sexual urges or sexual desires and how that can i guess maybe be if not a cautionary tale, like uh, reaching out to someone who might also be repressing those things and encouraging them to embrace that that side of themselves, and and seeing what can happen when you don't necess- when you don't listen to yourself and your own intuitions, and sort of you know force this relationship to bend and become ugly, and you know an embodiment of these like gender norms and how Stefan you know starts the film in one place and then he ends the film really uh controlling and abusive and violent and uh very domineering uh which is yeah i i, I just i think that there was such a surprising uh, amount of things packed into like a barely a 90 minute movie mind you <laughs> right and like stefan i would love to, to to pause on that for one second because i also feel like depending on how you read the film i don't think necessarily stefan had a dissent i think we just uh revealed to Stefan always was like I'm curious mm-hmm. if both of y'all reads of this because like when we finally meet mother in a uh, in some ways I feel like it almost was like almost playing the psycho card of just being like mother's not who you think and I'd, maybe not I don't know if that was intentional but uh, when we meet mother it very much seems at least the way I read it like Stefan's lover at home and the way he talks about his marriage to Valerie that whole dialogue uh, when they're when they're speaking, it sounds like this is a thing that Stefan has done before. Like this isn't the first time he's whisked away from his manor and has married someone young and impressionable. And so I also love the idea that like Stefan, at least the way I interpreted it, is also like uh, is also bisexual and is also like hiding this huge part of his life and is just having his like little trysts on this other like uh, across the pond, other side of the world, sort of where he can express a certain part of himself separate from like his home and how like that division also isn't healthy and it causes him to get his kicks off in, in, in increasingly violent ways. And I love thinking about that because in some ways Valerie goes on a similar journey and in that way, they're kind of perfect for each other. Like two tragically never going to work out bisexuals together. Interesting. I totally, I totally read him so differently. Like I didn't yeah. even, I didn't even ha- like have, like, I guess I was like so focused on the obvious, like, you know, queer dynamics that we're exploring between Elizabeth and Valerie and, uh, and, uh, Elona, uh, you know, so I was like, obviously. So, so I wasn't even thinking about that also because, uh, like you, uh, I agree with you in the part that I was like, no, there wasn't a dissent with Stefan, like literally from like, 
besides that first scene, every other scene of him gives me the ick. Like he yeah. is like not a good guy. Like like he is so bad vibes. Um, you know, and he just gets worse, and we and we just get revealed more like how um you know how bad that is. So it's like I never thought of that. I thought I thought mother was still, I thought mother was his parent. Um, and I mean, not to know what they distinguish as, but like, I assume like maybe formally his father, um, and then maybe transitioned and and he, and and then he maybe is like, he can't handle that. Like, it's not that he's worried about like bringing Valerie home, uh, because of Valerie, he's, uh, like has a shame and embarrassment. And I feel like that's where his like violence comes from to to you know really assert his heteroness to be like no I'm the man I am the husband I control um I get what I want it, I'm pleased so so I felt like that was like and that could still be because of a of a, a closeted homophobia or closeted feelings that he has about himself to again go that other route to be like no I am so extra you know man um, in a way. So that's the way that I always read him. And like, I feel like that's like, for me, that's where like the, the horror of this movie comes from, you know, because this, you know, isn't, I mean, yeah, we have some kills and things in there, but like really the horror is like just him and his, um, you know, way of thinking of, you know, um, you know, positions of power and roles within a relationship and all these things. Yeah, it just brings the idea, like, can you ever fully trust a man? Like, and that's a scary thought to think about and to sit with. But I love that idea, too. I like that read, too. Just, like, just a rejection of femininity. And, like, I mean, yes. the way, especially, yes. like, we haven't talked about Alona too much, but, like, especially the way it comes across with Alona, like, it's just, like, he treats her entire body like an object. And the way it's shot, too, like, she just, she clearly feels like she's, like, she's a woman who's, like, involved in the situation. But the way it's shot when he's interacting with her it does just feel like he's grabbing at parts of her and doesn't even see her as like a human with feelings. Um, so yeah, I just love that idea of just like, again, he, whatever he's dealing with, whether it's like homophobia, uh, fear of, of his like mother, you know, fear of himself, fear of queerdom. Like he's just expressing it by wanting to like kill what he doesn't understand, which is just like a really, really deep, like terrifying undercurrent of this film. So I'm really happy that Stefan doesn't live. <laughs> well, you had mentioned already this maybe uh, it's a subtle, intentional, otherwise kind of tipping of the hat towards something like Psycho. Obviously, that uh, has very well uh, kind of discussed queer themes in, in subtext, too, and these kind of questions of internalized homophobia. And I, I think that there's definitely a conversation to be had about that trope, right? The people who are the most outwardly homophobic and have the most to say are just having that internalized uh you know uh homophobia because of their closeted sexuality i i think that that is something that is definitely um possible here i think if it is happening it's not my favorite trope uh in in storytelling this idea i think it minimizes uh people who are homophobic to just be that to just be hateful and horrible and not necessarily have this tragic oh woe is me sort of attitude to it um i think that there's definitely a conversation there but for me i felt like stefan was more of a character of an embodiment or of what you were kind of talking about of this fear of not being able to trust just men in general and this sort of cyclical kind of toxic masculinity masculinity that we're seeing with stefan is that he has obtained his wife he's obtained his he's conquered his prize and that's his and he's not going to let 
you know, her slip through his fingers. And so I felt like the film was just him slowly kind of closing his grasp uh, over the course of the movie and uh, the the way that he uh, just seeks to just conquer the next person who gives him any attention, like we see um, uh, with the, the character that you were discussing. And yeah, that shower scene is just is horrifying, right? Like he just, just completely views her as just a, a means to get him off and then just cast them aside. So mm-hmm. I, I think that just for myself, I think that that kind of lessens the blow a little bit if he is having this um, tragic sort of closeted homosexuality. Um, but I, I could understand a, a power in that, I guess. I think it's just a trope that in recent years especially I think has been worn a, a little thin. Well, when, well, and I don't think even if that is his backstory, I don't think that still gives him any more sympathy because I don't, like, no matter your tragic backstory, you still have to act like a human being in society, you know? So it's like, even if that, so like I do understand like it is tropey, but I'm also like, I'm not saying like, that uh that 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 should lessen it and i feel like um you know with this portrayal uh stefan comes into i never got to weigh in on like the intention part which is where um i think there always is i think that i think for camp there usually does have to be uh an element of intention but then i like thinking of it in the way that um sontag was describing of like uh serious versus anti-serious I feel like that's kind of, but because I feel like you you still have to like yes things end up being unintentionally campy, um, but I feel like if it's unintentionally campy, that's when it's like kind of more cheesy. Like I feel like you do kind of have to have somewhat of an idea behind it or like going into it. And I feel like for the movie, the camp is to you know blanket you know to put a soft blanket over this movie where you do have a lot of like bad serious you know subjects as far as and again the relationship stuff the sexuality stuff the control all these things there are like some really heavy stuff going on in the movie but you know it's softened by this blanket of camp you know with these characters you know Devon, uh, you're saying the handkerchief that she puts on the lamp is a metaphor for yes. the, the queer subtext in this movie. It dimmons the light a little bit, well, gives the, it a little bit of color, you know? Well, no, just the, I feel like it's the, that, that handkerchief is the, the camp over the darkness of this movie. Like, you know, of the, like, really, like, sinister stuff going on, like, is like, that's like, okay, here, we're gonna, um, you know, because again, even with Elizabeth, you know, we are so entranced to her at this beginning. And like, I mean, she is so gorgeous and fabulous and dressed amazingly. But at the end of the day, she is also a terrible manipulator, groomer type person as well. And so I feel like that's also where um, where the director and writers kind of, um, I think, play it in a, uh, in a way that's uh, fair because it's like, okay, hey, like we're not going to make anyone that like, yes, we're going to have the, the, the queer villain, but also you know, pretty much everybody has their faults to, you know, one degree or another in the film. So it's like that way it doesn't feel off balance to, to anyone. Um, so, you know, and, and I feel like it's also, you know, different that this was back in the seventies. I feel like it, that does uh, kind of um, rethink the way I think of, cause I feel like now uh, we pretty much know when writers or directors are queer or not. And, you know, or at least more, more oftentimes than we would back in the seventies. Cause I don't know something about four dudes uh, linking up to, to write about, you know, this fabulous uh, queer countess feels uh, there's a little bit of gayness there. There's something. So who knows about any of the four writers, you know, involved in this, just considering it was the seventies. Um, but I do feel like the the camp, at least for this movie, is very intentional, and I feel like, at least in most terms, I think, uh, it, good for camp to be successful. I think it needs to have the intention personally. Yeah, 
I know there's some behind the scenes details of like some abuse that happened like b- behind uh, closed doors on this movie. I know like uh, the director had like apparently struck uh, Delphine during like an outburst or like a in the middle of a scene or something like that. So intentionality or otherwise, I, 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 whether or not they were like uh, intentionally telling the story this way uh, with this leaning of camp and fem- and just like huzzah feminism sort of <laughs> attitude, I'm still like, no, fuck that guy. You know, <laughs> I don't want to give him his flowers too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. And there is like, I will say that my brain totally forgot. And I, I guess I should have said this the off, like at the, at the junks. I feel like there's a lot to love about this film, but there is also like huge trigger warning. There's if, if not more than one, there, there are definitely rape scenes in this film. Uh, which can be really hard to, to watch. And I think, speaking of the intentionality, I think that, um, I I think in some ways, I do think that the film in those moments was like showing the monster in some ways a little bit too much, like the reveling in Stefan's monstrous nature. And I think kind of like what De- like Devon was saying, like it, it, it does work, but only because we also have the flip side of seeing like a literal, like, from what we can tell, lesbian vampire, like drain like a man's blood and, and throw a man in a ditch. So like there's all these like uh, things that take away and dismantle that power. But that doesn't take away from the fact that you still have to sit through watching that and in question like, well, why am I watching this? Um, so that's also a part of it as well that like I think knowing that about the director, I'm like, hmm, this, this like gives me some feelings about like maybe how those scenes were shot and the necessity yeah. of having them to begin with. Yeah. Like, I mean, you well, know, like that's I, a- I was just, yeah, I was just going to say, like, I, I think it's it really is in the truest sense of the word, a product of its time when you have this new wave of feminism, like sweeping across the country and, and women's rights of this time were definitely like a real hot button issue for a lot of people. And for Hollywood to react with this genre that for the most part is just this sleazy sort of you had already mentioned this kind of voyeuristic just approach to just watching women just have, you know, sex with women on screen and and labeling it as as art i i think that that knowledge could definitely sway someone's kind of understanding of this movie in regards to intentionality specifically i think it's certainly up for debate but uh regardless i still think and applaud that as opposed to people seeing this as a takedown of feminism it's more about the fear that people have of powerful women and the fear of them kind of reclaiming their own agency and and having this power dynamic sort of switched and what happens to those who are losing said influence and said power and, and their response to that. So whether or not Harry here was like, yeah, Stefan, <laughs> he's the good oh, guy yeah. of this movie. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah, is, that's uh, not, you know, yeah, yeah. No. that's, that's not it. Yeah, I, no. I, I will say yeah. like, yeah, no, like, I mean, fuck, fuck him and any tactics that he was using, but I will at least say that the film itself does, you know, present the things, you know, as good that should be. And it does present the things that are bad as bad as they should be like you know the opening sex scene is very visual it's you know that's the one passionate you know again like moment between them but then the rest of everything is you know if it's something terrible we're not seeing it like because like that scene um you know the the uh at the midway point of the film ish and it really just like that's what i was like kind of talking about where it's like oh we're i'm having a campy time with all this like oh they're seducing each other we kind of got that you know uh hey i dig your vibe from across the room stuff going on this is all fun and then when that scene happened like that was like kind of like the shift 
and I appreciated that it was like, um, you know, obviously we see like the, the visual of him, like, you know, beating her with this belt. Um, it's obscured by the curtain, which helps a little bit, but not really because the sound design is, uh, horrific, uh, horrifying. Um, but then the way that they do kind of show the, the implication of rape rather than I'm so glad, you know, we don't get a rape scene in this. We don't need it. Um, but the way that it like, you know, cuts to just their naked and Benny still has the belt in his hand like that hit me like a ton of bricks. So it's like the things that are still bad are, you know, shown to be bad and, you know, so much more so, you know, as well. Like, so, yeah, yeah. but, 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 you know, let's, let's shift, you know, we're, we're on some heavy stuff here. So let's talk about the, let's do talk about the fun uh, camp elements and angles here. Um, as far as, you know, the, the way that things are, uh, because again, I feel like even though there are such horrible things happening, uh, the, uh, the, you know, delightfulness of some of these like kind of, uh, you know, weird upbeat performances, um, soften the blow for sure. But, um, but you know, there's, um, especially with Elizabeth, like, because again, she is, uh, not a great character, but this performance and her presentation is just, it's too fabulous not to be endeared to. Um, so like, again, like, uh, talking about, um, Delphine, the, the way that she, uh, says lines is so great. Uh, the way that she is presented so elegantly, um, is, uh, really great as well. Um, but then, um, the way that, um, the, uh, even, uh, even the, you know, we have like the heavy stuff with the relationship stuff, but the kills are presented very silly and like slapsticky, so <laughs> um, which I very much appreciate. Um, you know, it's like people just like kind of flailing around and spinning and falling onto things in like, just like ways that, you know, wouldn't normally happen or, you know, somebody getting hit off a bike off the side of the road. So it's like, at least all the kills are presented in like these like very like whimsical fashions. Yeah. Yeah, and I love just like how uh, like the director styled Elizabeth after Marlene Dietrich, Dietrich, uh, and it's just it's just fantastic. Like there's one scene where she's wearing just an entire rhinestone like skin tight dress. <laughs> I don't know how she moved in that, but it's just the costume designing is phenomenal in this film. It's so good. Yeah, I love the. It's towards the end of the movie, but uh, she puts this sort of like choker collar on her, and it's got like real like bdsm sort of vibes to it and it just felt very like you know uh like she was she finally claimed her that she put this thing around her neck yes. like literally it was like very erotic and uh really effective like uh imagery you know yeah i know that was that was passed down from like alona to uh, valerie so it's just like you feel like she has this like you wonder how many other women she went through beforehand which i think is really fun to think about <laughs> Yeah, and uh, like you know that that's pretty like that's presented very erotically. Um, I I'm a sucker for hands, and uh, this movie <laughs> is too. Uh, so much hand porn of just like close ups of people touching each other, touching objects, you know, and like uh, you know, they show a hand so much to where it like becomes like an identifier throughout the film as well. Um, but everybody just has like pristine manicures and everything. Um, the only compliment that I will give Stefan in this entire film is the way that he serves that red leather jacket and the silver sunglasses um, when they're in Bruges. It's a fucking look, not going to lie. Um, you know, so the fashion game all around is, uh, is, is really tight. Um, but yeah, so I, I really do, um, I really uh, not only love the, the, the kind of like attention to like the hands and the, the details in that way, um, but 
you know the the way that they use the eroticism to again like offset the the morbid stuff like especially in the uh the scene where you know uh Stefan and Elizabeth are pretty much fucking in front of Valerie uh she is just caressing him and he is like you know he's all into it and they are describing the most morbid shit as they recount like the the uh, you know mythology of um the uh, Countess Bathory and it is like some of the things that they are saying, like I wrote down a couple of them. There was like, oh yeah, and then they ripped his tit, they ripped the nipples off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and then the skin was shredding. And they're saying just the most morbid things, but while like doing this like obscene caressing, it's so like erotic. It's like uh, the I I love the there's a, there. this clashing of that too towards the end of this movie where they're like driving back from like dumping off the body uh dumping off stefan's body and like the sun is about to come up and she like Bathory is like whispering in her ear and it's like she's like getting off on the fact that she's about to fucking die and like they're like it's this really like heightened romance and sex and death and then you know eventually ends up at her getting launched from the car and getting uh impaled but it does have and set on fire and also set on fire you can't you can't forget that but it's this mix of passion and love and, and you know like it really is like this life and death sort of uh like soap opera sort of angles which i think it's moments like that i'm just like oh yeah camp is hell you know <laughs> yeah my favorite my favorite moment is with stefan's death like i just think it's just so it comes <laughs> it, we know it's, we know it's coming and i knew i had to talk about this because it's like <laughs> they wrestle him to the ground and they're like i'm gonna suffocate this bastard yes. with a crystal bowl i was like what were you thinking ladies like how are you gonna suffocate him with a bowl and then that somehow magically cracks in half and it just lands on his wrists and he bleeds out and then they're just like let's suck him dry and you're like oh okay well, like, don't want to <laughs> let it go to waste you know just oh, gotta get just, your, your free imagine, meal imagine there's like how many men wrote this how many men were sitting there just being like oh yeah suffocate with a crystal bowl totally works like I was, how many people approve that <laughs> i was so confused because yeah i remember you tweeted you're like oh yeah death by crystal crystal bowl and then so i was so confused when they were putting it on his face i was like wait ladies what are you doing i was like because i thought it was just gonna get like bashed in the head with it. i was like what are you guys doing they tried to suffocate him and yeah uh just uh the the perfect uh you know in half and just yeah it tumbles on so it's like how heavy is that bowl to where it tumbles onto his wrist and slits you know like uh the the, the mechanics here are all, all over the place but does uh, make for a great image of of valerie and elizabeth you know sucking his blood together you know the the yeah. And the way that the movie, like the special effects of the blood, it's like bright crimson. That's red my favorite blood. It's it's I so love favorite. That. Like paint. Yeah. I want to look like paint on the walls falling down. It's that so opaque good. bright shit. That is that's my favorite blood. I'm, I love it. Uh, yeah. So it's like yeah. Between that death and uh, even though um, Ilona's death, it sucks because it does come from you know right after Stefan being a fucking total monster. Um, but just again, the presentation of it, she literally does, she spins She's around like, the no. entire, she spins around the entire bathroom, um, it knocks it, knocks the stuff. Yeah. First just holds it in her hand, gets her hand cut first. And it's just like, oh my goodness. It's a, yeah, the, the chain of events. And then, yeah, the, the, um, uh, Elizabeth's death at the end. Yeah. It's not enough to go through the windshield. 
you got to get impaled too. You also got to catch on fire. Like you got to like we need stages That's camp. here. Well, That's I was, camp. It's so camp. I was I was surprised to see that this didn't sort of fall along that trope of you know all queer stories have to end in tragedy. There is definitely like a tragic angle to it of her dying, but that sort of epilogue that we get at the end, I legitimately thought the movie was over. I picked up the remote and was like ready to turn off Shutter, and it was like six months later or whatever the hell it was, and I was like, wait, there's more. And no, she's like, yeah, she's passed the torch. She's even sounds the exact same, has her voice now, and she's you know fucking some tennis players or whatever they were you know i love that i love that detail that like i don't know i don't know if that like sound design wise if it is actually like the same actor's voice but whether or not she was mimicking it but i love the detail that she now has that voice especially like thinking of like the queer themes in this it's just like that part of her was silenced before and now like it's like the box is open we can't close that box like yes she's gone full battery (laughs) yeah it's like well because i love too because i feel like yeah like even though like the way that you know we've talked about the way that she delivers lines but that is like part of her you know uh her vampirism is like her the way she speaks is hypnotic and you know that's the way that she puts valerie under the spells later in the movie too is her just like constantly whispering sweet nothings into her ear and like that's like you know the thing and um and and we've debated on many uh, you know movies on here um you know about you know the good for her endings and and for this one in particular even though it's like okay like does she she wanted you know she is now the new elizabeth but she is still also her person and i feel like the best thing for valerie was to now she gets to live a, a life of eternity completely on her own and do exactly what she wants to do she's like no i don't need stefan but i also don't need to be a pet to you either elizabeth so like you know so so for for as as far as on the slang sales i'm i'm here for valerie uh i'm like yeah i'm like you like look you get to wear the clothes that you want to wear now you get to speak the way you want to do you get to fuck whoever you want like hell yeah girl i i'm very happy for valerie at the end of this not gonna lie yeah especially because she starts off as just being so like I speaking of like the scene you mentioned earlier where uh, Elizabeth and Stefan are just like having like a massage massage just like roll down situation going on. They're doing it in front of Valerie and Valerie is watching it and Elizabeth is getting off on the fact that Valerie is watching them do this and that too is like kind of playing in their seduction. But Valerie is just like, no, stop, don't do it, don't do it. It's like <laughs> you can just leave, like you can get out of the room, Valerie. Why are you still there watching it? Like she just seems so just without any agency at all. That I just love that she ends up just becoming a monster but living her best life. So I'm very happy for her. And she did nothing wrong in the movie either. She didn't no. kill anybody. Like she didn't kill anybody. She didn't do anything wrong. She didn't, she wasn't manipulating anybody. She did nothing nope. wrong. And to like, I mean, yes, I, I mean, they're monogamous, I guess. But like, even if you're playing with that, those rules, like she didn't sleep with Elizabeth until like Stefan had already cheated on her. So I was like, all bets are off. He like, he, yep. he had sex yep. with her like a flying vampire. You don't owe him anything. <laughs> I feel like there's definitely also this sort of, uh, portrayal at the end of the movie of this kind of the generational like nature of homosexuality and how in prior generations maybe had to struggle with things or have certain hardships that maybe newer generations not necessarily don't have but it's just different and like the context uh in which they're living is different and so kind of this passing of the torch in that sort of way um i i also thought was uh very like uh encompassing of uh, what the movie was already discussing and these themes at hand you know yeah i, I don't i don't know if i necessarily agree with that but I, I do love the idea that it's keeping queerness alive that like through elizabeth's like 
kind of, I mean, maybe sacrifice. I feel like we don't know how long she's lived, but I think like you said in that car, like she didn't seem too, too scared that she's about to die. She might've just been like, all right, like my prodigy is going to take over and there's like, mm, I don't want to say hope, but there's like a drive there and like, that's enough. So like, I love that idea of just like continuing to exist and continuing to, uh, Invite more people into this vampiric coven. <laughs> there's, there's a, I feel like there's a layer of optimism too, even that because again, kind like of, from yeah. what we saw from Valerie throughout the film, she doesn't have like kind of like those nefarious intentions. So like, there's even an idea that it's like, hey, maybe she can figure out how to be a peaceful vampire. You know, maybe she goes, you know, goes vegetarian and goes to animals only, or <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, th- maybe there's hope yeah. that she can just be a person that goes around being able to unlock people's inhibitions and let them be yeah. their true selves. And, uh, you know, she had this, you know, queer awakening and she wants to be able, you know, there's something about that because she's like even still because because throughout the film, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of color theory kind of stuff going on, um, you know, and uh, especially when the three main characters are presented there, they'll always be one is in red, one's in white, one's in black. And like and but usually it's like kind of like um Valerie usually isn't presented in white throughout the film. Usually it's Stefan or Elizabeth. She's not usually presented as such. Um, uh, she's even though she is like kind of supposed to be the, the pure one of the bunch. So like at the end when she has her uh, countess gear uh, on, it's primarily white. So now she mm. is, she's her true self and she, she's her true pure self now. Oh, I love that. I love that so much, especially because, like, like, well, maybe she's just having consensual polyamorous sex, and she's very happy. Yeah, like the the, the tennis players, oh. they seem pretty chill. So like, yeah, everyone's nice. Again, optimism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think like there's there's this conversation that uh, uh, Bathory is having where she's talking about kind of her past life, and she says that she just remembers it like a like a bad dream, uh, and then that she says that it's uh, the line is I have seen many a night fall away into even more endless night. So there definitely does seem to be some sadness about this, like life that she used to have and that's just so far into the rearview memory that it's more of a dream than anything so i i feel like she's definitely been a vampire long enough to where it's just like hey if this is gonna happen it's gonna happen and i'm you know i've had a lot i've had a good go at things you know yeah you know maybe you know uh, elizabeth maybe at one point was you know a little bit more bright-eyed but then you know eventually just like oh no i just like the idea of if i have this power i can make somebody my pet like alona you know and they kind of have this uh you know dracula renfield uh um relationship i feel bad for her um you know like uh yeah they don't really give her as a character all too much besides being kind of just like the pet um, but um, I do love that she has a great wardrobe as well. She also uh, <laughs> sure. uh, she looks like Christina Ricci. Um, I could totally she see uh, Christina Ricci uh, taking this role on if they ever uh, did this again. But um, yeah, uh, pour one out for Alona because she just uh, she didn't deserve any of this. She didn't deserve none of it. No, poor girl. Yeah, I think that, and you had mentioned it, Devon, that was maybe one of the areas that the film didn't work as well for me was in its characters. Uh, I feel like it was more concerned with archetypes and, and its exploration of a lot of these themes and power dynamics that these characters mostly just became sort of vessels for those ideas and didn't necessarily, in my eyes, like feel fully realized as, as characters. So I wasn't necessarily emotionally engaged to see what was happening with these people it was more of the ideas that the movie was was bringing up so yeah i would say that and then maybe some um 
some uh, pacing here and there. It's not just because like, well, the movie's old, it's boring. No, I I, I just think that the movie just doesn't um uh necessarily uh structure its its story in like the most uh, captivating way all of the time. Uh, but those are still some pr- uh, pretty small issues for me. Yeah, I would say um yeah I I agree because yeah this movie is more interested in the ideas and the presentation more than. Like, even though this is about the characters and they present a lot of interesting ideas, I would say, like, yeah, I was a little underwhelmed that we don't get to kind of go into some more of these. But I feel like uh, we would if this was not focused on also being a campy erotic movie at the same time. Um, So I feel like they they kind of did it in that way because like and also just the fact that like every, uh, you know, like real instance between each characters are just these like conversations with intellectual duels and, you know, whatever. And it's just like. And that, that gets repetitive, you know, and, and they literally just do that until it's like, okay, now it's time to cheat on each other and then accidentally kill uh, Alona and then let's fast forward to the end. So um, it does have a, a little bit of, uh, I, I feel you there and I feel like it, it, I feel like the movie does kind of have a thing where it's like, okay, you're presenting these ideas and things. I either do kind of want you to go a little bit more into it or uh, lay off and let's go campier because I also agree uh, with Garrett to a certain degree that it's like yeah this isn't the most campy movie and definitely could be more campy um, if but only if they weren't also trying to go with these uh, kind of serious ideas so it's kind of a, a, a 50-50 there this feels like a fever dream for me and it's like not every day do I want to sit down and watch a fever dream but like when the when the vibe hits this will deliver <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And and we usually do this at the top, but I guess uh, subgenres will be a nice way to close out the conversation here as we kind of uh, talk about our last kind of favorite things. Uh, so Cass, what are the uh, subgenre elements that really uh, work for you in this film? Ooh, I would say, I already said gothic romance, but I think that one just like it, it, it works the strongest, I think, because I think this is definitely feeling like a Carmia retelling of sorts. Um, so I think that one works, I would say... Uh, I mean, uh, old vampires. I think vampires counts as a genre, subgenre. Uh, and then maybe as a third one, I would probably say, I would say thriller, because like I wouldn't necessarily like on this like on the, I wouldn't just say that to someone like oh go watch this thriller and then have them watch Daughters of Darkness is the only thing I say, but I do think like the tension for me works the most when it feels kind of more like a. Um, uh, what what came later in like the 90s subgenre horror of the like uh, mistrustful woman or the like antagonizing husband and and how like an affair will like tear everyone apart and, and that kind of idea that we see in, like basic instinct and fatal attraction and it has like that that tied up in there too um, so yeah those three yeah I think apart from this uh, the obvious of being like this sort of vampire sort of not so uh, you know story uh, at, at play here i think that that's obviously an element i think that there's a cult classic status that this movie has has garnered kind of in conjunction with it being like a, a, a pretty iconic queer horror film um i i think those two really uh, kind of feed off of one another but i think that at the heart of this movie this is like a gothic romance sort of soap 
opera sleaze fest, you know, uh, and I mean that in the best way possible. It's not an insult at all. Uh, I just I think that they're like I've talked about it a few times. There are just so many kind of uh, colors and flavors towards this movie that I think just play really well um, together. And I, I, I think it's certainly a product of its time. And I think that that is for good and for ill. I think that there's a lot of qualities to the movie that feel really modern and feel uh, quite empowering. And I think ask a lot of interesting questions and questions that we're still asking as as audiences and, and just people in our day-to-day kind of conversations. Um, but I think that the movie does have some products of its time in the way that it portrays some of these characters um, and maybe some of the intentionality um, behind that um, and that they, they become more concerned with... Uh, who these characters are and how they serve the the themes rather than as as um characters and, and, and individuals um but i was uh very impressed with this movie it was it was a lot of fun to watch uh, i'm I, I think this is a good starting place for the camp because i think it's only going to uh, go up from here oh yeah we're, we're definitely gonna get campier and um i guess for yeah the subgenres for me i'm i notice that i am a fan of the more pseudo vampire movies um, because even though we have a lot of clues here, uh, we're still never confirmed, you know, that is Elizabeth actually a vampire? You know, we see her obviously drink blood, but it's not because she, you know, bit anyone's neck and sucked on it or anything. She says she's much older than she looks, but we don't know by how much. Um, and even though, like, yes, Valerie, like, survives the car crash at the end, she might have just been able to get out of the car. And it was six months later and she's all healed up now. We don't know. And I like the all the vague parameters, even though all the signs are kind of there. But then it's like, or Elizabeth just really doesn't like the sun. Maybe she's, uh, uh, you know, got a skin thing. Who knows? Um, you know, so it's like I, I like a, a vague vampire um, for sure. And uh, definitely I would put this in the erotic. I put this in the erotic thriller uh, department barely. Um, mainly because like, yes, the main kind of plot is this, uh, you know, dueling desires and, you know, uh, sexual power plays amongst different people and things like that. So it does, it has that and it is thrilling in the fact that uh, people die, uh, as you know, results of these passions. So I definitely would put it in there. Um, I like, but I, I do like, um, and for the, the camp factor as well. Um, those are literally like as I've been like going through erotic thrillers like the like past year or so. Those are like my main four rubrics uh, for erotic thrillers. Um, but where it does lack is uh, in the twist department. Erotic thrillers are famous for their twists and there's some mysteries set up, but again, they don't really um uh it don't really amount to anything. Like the whole thing with Stefan's mother, like we see him, you know, this phone conversation, but then that's it. We don't like you know we get no explanation for it, like no nothing. Um, there's no mystery, like, is Elizabeth, uh, killing people? Um, it, they, again, kind of don't really answer. Like, I mean, yeah, they imply that it's her, but we don't exactly know. So it's like, um, it kind of lacks in the twist department as far as for an erotic thriller. But, um, those are definitely, um, the main ones I saw in it as well as like, just like kind of the, the gothic romance of it all, you know, just the, in the, in the presentation of them being, I feel like there is something very gothic about being the only couple in a giant hotel, like this, like Victorian hotel too at that. And just like, Oh yeah, it's just us and the concierge and like, that's it. Like, so like something about uh, only a few people occupying this like giant space. I feel like that uh, is inherently gothic in, in some way um, for sure. So, so let's go ahead and give our final ratings out of a, a five glass decorative bowls. Um, <laughs> Go ahead and uh, give us give it to us out of five. 
Uh, I will say, I'll say 3.5 uh, deadly crystal balls. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I, I'm in the same place, uh, 3.5 uh, uh, for me. This was uh, uh, one that was a pleasure to like mark off my watch list. I, I think that if you haven't seen this, there's a really actually like gorgeous transfer on Shudder. It looks great. Like this movie is like still like, uh, they must have had like a really high quality scan uh, for that, for the probably the 4K that they made. And it's on Shudder and it's amazing and it looks great. Um, uh, and I, I think that the, the beauty of, of this movie is really just matched by uh, a lot of the, interesting conversations that the film is had having regardless if some of the character stuff works for me or not so yeah three and a half out of five uh, uh broken shards of a crystal bowl <laughs> i was uh yeah i was kind of wrestling back and forth but i also landed on 3.5 cal <laughs> but i also landed on a 3.5 out of five so a uh, first sweep we've had in a while um, but yeah, because I feel like there is again, even more, there's even so much more potential, like, of again, like some of these like meatier subjects that they really could get into that I find fascinating. I do, I did find it compelling, but it's just like, uh, we don't really get too much payoff in any way. Like, I mean, you got, like, you can't, you can't edge me the entire movie and then, and then that just be that. Like, that's, that's this, like, you know, you gotta, I need to, uh, some sort of payoff here and. I just don't get it uh, in any facet, but I do love the way that it looks. Again, the costuming is absolutely fantastic. Um, and again, for their respective camp performances, everyone is dialed in to where they should be for the film. So I very much appreciate that as well. It is gorgeous. Also on the Criterion channel as well, um, If uh, just in case if it does uh, leave Shutter at some point. Um, but yeah, so, um, and I very much, uh, the aesthetic and the music, the music is really good. Um, it's like, it's very much like a, like, uh, like every track like designates exactly how you're supposed to be feeling about the scene. Like, okay, here, this is what's coming. This is the sexy one. No, now this <laughs> is the, this is the nefarious one, you know? And like, they're like, this is like very like exaggerated, like upbeat, like sexy jazz, um, I don't know how to describe it, but that's it just fits porn the music movie. from the seventies, Devon. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, basically. Um, so yeah, so uh, three point five all around. Let's see what other movies we had on the brain while we were talking Daughters of Darkness. All right, right here, here on, on Spectre Cinema Club, we like to end all of our episodes by playing a game called Movie Math. Uh, you just have to take some of the films that reminded you of the movie that we discussed today and put it in some sort of mathematical equation. Uh, uh, the Guest of Honor uh, cast, what is in your equation? 1977 Suspiria plus Alucarda plus The Hunger in a small, small fraction of Wuthering Heights. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, I, I, I can see all those things. Um, uh, Alucarda, we actually, that's a, one of the fab, uh, fabled lost episodes of the podcast. I did record oh, an no. episode. I did record an episode of it at some point, and, but I don't think I have it anymore, unfortunately, which sucks. But uh, very, very great movie, though. Uh, it's a very, uh, I think it's actually streaming now. I remember when we did that episode, it was like two years ago, like uh, prior to Garrett. And I had to watch it on like YouTube because it just yeah. like, wasn't available anywhere, and it was like such a like shitty <laughs> like looking uh, upload of it. So it is now you can actually watch out your card. So highly recommend that one. 
That's fantastic. Especially if you love Painted Blood and lesbian vampires. Again, discreet lesbian vampires because yes. they don't technically say they're vampires, though I read it that way. <laughs> exactly, for sure. Um, in my equation, I actually had a, a couple of uh, similar ones, but uh, it was pretty it was pretty simple for me. I mean, I had a few other um, movies on my brain, but for the most part, it came down to, uh, of course, The Hunger, um, which we did cover here on the on the podcast uh, uh, like a year or two ago. This was in the first wave of Pride Month um, episode, so you can go listen to that. It was paired with um, Only Lovers Left Alive, so, you know, uh, sexy queer vampires all around. That was a great time. Um, but uh, every time I rewatch it, I appreciate it a little bit more. Um, I'm definitely uh, Team Tony as far as uh, the Scott brothers go. Um, and the, the, the vibe on this movie is just fantastic. And again, like plays on a lot of similar power dynamic stuff that's going on in this movie. Um, and, and as well as like the, the vague vampirism as well. So, you know, and even the presentation, um, you know, you can't get more blue than the hunger. Um, but, but there is some scenes that get pretty blue in, uh, Dars of Darkness, but not, not quite there. Um, added with another very blue movie, um, Possession, which I finally got to see for the first time. Uh, not too long ago, um, as far as like you know, seeing like a deteriorating relationship goes, um, except like you know that one we just kind of pick up where they're already like fucked and it just like gets worse. But this one is kind of the classic like oh we see the passionate newlyweds and then over the course of the film like see how um you know terrible they are for each other and uh how they misunderstand each other's desires and like what they want out of a relationship um i feel like that's uh kind of the big thing in possession and again like where the horror mainly comes from aside from you know the the tentacle monster stuff um so um pretty much you uh put the hunger and possession together like i i get this movie uh for me in my equation i have uh the haunting uh which is like essentially like kind of the isolated thriller single location uh, kind of elements of the movie that we d- uh, talked about today i have that in parentheses plus black sunday which is also this very gothic story about uh power and gender roles uh that movie mostly looks at it through like the lens of religion um but i still think that it's enough at play here that i, I saw some uh, uh overlap a little bit i have those in parentheses like i said and then multiplied by uh vampires vampires with a, a y um that was another kind of peer of like this movie where it's uh lesbian vampires very 70s like very soft focused like voyeuristic for sure that one's definitely uh much more male gazy than i think that this movie is uh but i think that in conjunction with some of the uh, other themes and the ideas in the equation i think it balances it out enough yeah i i for i for sure see that and i meant to put something in for the single location thriller as well i think i was uh, i think if you take mine then divide it by the shining i think that's uh, that was another one that I kind of had listed as far as a similar relationship stuff and the the single location because yeah most of this movie does take place at at uh, at the hotel which I couldn't find the name of that's why I had to just um just go to Austin just in general but uh, I was trying to direct you guys to the hotel but it's all good um but thank you so much Cass for coming on and uh, kicking off thank our you. celebration of camp here on Spectre Cinema Club uh, very excited for uh, the conversations that we're gonna have going forward and. Uh, you know, as we kind of unravel the enigma that is camp. Um, But what are you working on right now? I am just finishing up the final edits on my debut horror novella, The Caretaker. It's coming out from Harris Cream Press sometime soon this summer with the next couple months. Uh, Very excited about that. 
editing my little heart away over here and excited to listen to the rest of your camp episodes coming out in this lovely pride month yeah and where can the people find you on social media on the twitter until it burns to the ground <laughs> you can it's just Cass clark it's pretty easy to find me there and uh yeah i don't bite too much so come say hi <laughs> Hey, we're we're all, I'm I'm right there with you until until Twitter <laughs> is in ashes. I'm I'm still there, uh, for sure. And of course, like uh, whenever your book comes out, we'll definitely uh, have to give it a nice little shout once it's released because we're super excited for that. That's uh, amazing, Garrett. What are you working on right now? I'm certainly not working on any books, uh, <laughs> but if you guys want to uh, see some other stuff that I'm working on, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, uh, Letterboxd, TikTok at Garrett Bechtel. Um, if you want some more podcast stuff from me, uh, you can follow my uh, Star Wars podcast at Scum Villain Pod on Twitter. We have new episodes every Thursday. So, uh, yeah, uh, not definitely not writing a book, though. Not anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we will have links to all that in the description below, of course. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram at Letterboxd at underscore Daddy Disco. Um, you can uh, hear me recently on the Palm Pendulum uh, doing Hell House LL3, um, a, a, a very weird franchise. Uh, my hot take, I don't really like one at all, uh, but two. <laughs> two is pretty lit, y'all. But uh, but we did our episode on three, which is hot garbage fire, but still a, uh, a fun episode to listen to since we don't usually uh, talk about movies we dislike here on the pod. So if you want to hear uh, a rare uh, me in a negative mode, uh, it, we still had a very good time with it. So uh, go check the pod and pendulum out. We're going to be starting um, Jaws and some John Carpenter movies over there coming up. So super excited for that. But now go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Spectre Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe to not miss a thing. You can follow us on social media at Spectre Cinema on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, a nice little review. We appreciate you. But until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>